Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we're here 12 noon every Saturday. If you've been listening to us, it would have been for years and years, I know. And we're here to defend and to promote public education and also to defend and promote religious liberty because the two are intricately related. As we've discovered in the last week or so, because the discrimination bill, the religious discrimination bill from Canberra is dead in the water. Very interesting. And throughout the whole whole kerfuffle, there's been very little mention of Section 116 of the Constitution or the Dogs case of 1981. But in the last week, there have been two very interesting uh, commentaries in The Age and this um, Sydney Morning Herald. One is from the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney and the other one is from Walid Ali, a good uh, Muslim boy from Egypt who actually went to uh, Wesley, I believe. But... um, We're going to deal with this in our press release 924 shortly. As well as that, um, there has been a very interesting article, and thank you to the person who sent it to me. Trevor Cobalt has been doing a mountain of work over there in Canberra in Save Our Schools, and he has got into the paper the facts and the figures about private school funding increasing five times the rate of public schools. And we will find that the Labor Party may be listening. As well as that, we've got another very interesting article. Again, thank you to the person who sent it to me. The private schools, as far as university entrants are concerned, have been trying to game the system with the international baccalaureate because of the way it can be marked, whereas most public schools, particularly in New South Wales, do the HSC, which is fairly stringently marked. And the university bosses, particularly at the University of New South Wales, are asking a few questions. So um, because they were comparing uh, the results in the International Baccalaureate with those of what is reputed to be 
probably the best state school in Australia, James Roos Agricultural High School, we thought that we'd make that our great state school for this week. So that is what you're going to be listening to in the next hour. So let's get the show on the road, shall we? Press release 924. Oliver's going to tell us what it's about. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. This is press release 924. Religious liberty comes at a price. For the moment, the religious liberty issue has been shelved by a parliament that should not be dealing with religious matters under section 116 of the constitution. Prime Minister Morrison has been shamed by the moderates on his own side. Labor played the chess game well, forcing Morrison to pull the highly contentious religious privileges bill from the Senate list. It's now, now unlikely to see the light of day before the election. It is best left dead and buried. But there are two problems. First, for those living in New South Wales, religion remains off the list of protected attributes under anti-discrimination law. Most other states and territories include religion as a ground upon which one cannot discriminate, but not New South Wales. This should be fixed. Second, as Australian Christian Lobby CEO Martin Ills points out in a video message to disciples, Section 38 of the Sex Discrimination Act still allows fundamentalist schools across the country to discriminate against LGBTI kids and teachers if they claim such discrimination is necessary to protect the sensitivities of their adherents. The debate over the religious discrimination bill has done two very interesting things. One, it has crystallized into public view divisions within religious communities and the need for religious liberty as a basic human right. And two, it has also highlighted the basic differences between public and private schools, leading commentator Walid Ali to note if private schools take public money, they should not be allowed to discriminate between children. Uh, one, religious rights. The Morrison government has vigorously lobbied by, has been vigorously lobbied by fundamentalist religious groups, but not all Christians interpret their religion in the same way, not to mention the Islamic, Sikh, Hindu, and Buddhist faiths. Anglican Archbishop of Melbourne, Philip Fryer, in the Sydney Morning Herald of Feb 14, wrote, people of faith, and Christians in particular, need not rush into believing that we need legislative authority to ensure our freedom to practice our faith. And he goes on, is there a way forward that can satisfy all fair-minded people? Yes, and I proposed it in 2020, a Charter Bill of Rights that could replace current piecemeal approach to anti-discrimination. So what did... Philip Fryer have to say, and Kim's going to tell us about that. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jean. Um, so Philip Fryer has written an article on the February the 14th in this year titled, Few Christian Schools Want to Discriminate, There's a Better Way Forward, and it goes thus. There were no winners from the accelerating train wreck of the federal government's attempt to pass a religious discrimination bill last week, except perhaps gay and transgender children who won support from the House of Representatives for extra protection in an, in an amendment to sexual discrimination legislation. Because the debate was hijacked by the religious schools issue, Christians were construed as people with a burning desire to discriminate. I emphasise that very few mainstream Christian schools want to discriminate against students on any grounds. My conversations with Anglican principals in Melbourne 
make me confident that they want gay or transgender students to flourish as much as any other student. Labor's struggle to persuade religious people that it respects their views was made harder while the government could hardly have been more divided and inept. Dangerously, the bill highlighted and perhaps exacerbated deep divisions because the farther edges of its advocates and opponents distrust each other so vehemently. I believe the broader community favours protecting both religious faith and sexual identity from discrimination, but far, far more people are now seeing them as utterly incompatible, which need not be so. It was all sadly predictable. And while it may be inelegant to say, I told you so, I did predict it. In March 2020, I wrote in The Age that Australia did not need such legislation because many of the recommendations of the Roddick Committee appointed by the government in 2017 to consider the issue could be achieved by amending existing anti-discrimination law. I still believe that people of faith and Christians in particular need not rush into believing that we need legislative authority to ensure our freedom to practice our faith. We have lived for a long time in Australia without such legislation and managed times of tension without the intervention of government. Indeed, these times of tension, it might be argued, have been managed well precisely because government has not been involved. An example I presented then remains just as relevant an intractable dispute between the Catholic and Anglican archbishops of Melbourne in the early 1930s. It was about the freedom to exercise religious practices in public. Cardinal Daniel Mannix wanted a procession of the elements of communion through the streets of Melbourne, whereas Anglican doctrine forbade that. Mannix was not persuaded, and the event went ahead as planned. The point is that had this matter escalated to a government adjudicator, however described, it is likely to have further inflamed the issue and made it even more divisive. It would have been an unwelcome incursion into the affairs of the church by the state. This is the danger of legislation. Had something that today would cause no concern being the basis of government intervention at that time, our contemporary freedoms may well have been severely altered over the intervening 90 years of, by any number of administrative and judicial decisions. With so many people battered and bruised by the attempted passage of the Religious Anti-Discrimination Bill, the government clearly has no appetite to try again before the presumed May federal election, and nor should it. Is there a way forward that can satisfy all fair-minded people? Yes, and I proposed it in 2020, a charter, bill, charter or bill of rights that could replace the current piecemeal approach to anti-discrimination. A bill of rights provides a context in which freedoms are defined and balanced, not privileging one particular group over another. It is the safest and most comprehensive approach to secure freedom of conscience of which religious freedom is a part. New Zealand's Bill of Rights introduced in 1990 is a good model. Article 13 on freedom of thought, conscience and religion states, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, religion and belief, including the right to adopt and to hold opinions without interference. That covers religious and non-religious alike. Of course, Christianity is a communal religion, as are most religions, and there should be protection for essential practices of gathering, worshipping and teaching. My conclusion remains that the, although any change to state or federal anti-discrimination laws necessarily involve government action, the less governments are involved, the better. Thank you, Kim. And now Jeff will let us know the dog's comment and stance. Yeah, thanks, uh, uh, Ollie and Kim. Uh, Philip Fryer seems to forget that we already have a Bill of Rights Religious Liberty Clause in our Australian Constitution, but no religious institution taking public money in Australia at the moment wishes to go there. Why? Because back in 1981, in the Dogs case, the High Court agreed with religious schools defendants that religious schools were not religious, but educational institutions. And the words any religion 
in section 116 only meant a particular religion. The religious schools did not want to lose one penny of their public money, which brings us to the second point. The basic hey. difference between public and private schools, the very rationale for having private schools is that they can discriminate, not only on the basis of ability to pay for an education, but on other grounds such as religion over which a child has no control. Wally Daly in the Sydney Morning Herald finally come to the conclusion that the dogs and others arrived at when faced with intractable religious and education problems, the voluntary solution. If your belief means that much to you, you put your money where your mouth is. That's the essence of religious liberty. So if you want to send your kids to Hogwarts, pay, not the government. Very good. Yes, that's the dog's position. And um, now we'll go to Walid Ali, who, believe it or not, has arrived at the dog's position in a very roundabout way. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and Maddie will come back to read us the Wallet Art Alley article. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're still listening to the dogs program, and uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? That uh, all this talk about religious liberty has really thrown into um, effect what the dogs have been about for the last 50, 60 years. And I think that we have a lot to thank the um, gay community for all of this because they have stood up to the churches and the others who have taken billions of dollars of public money and who have been quite prepared to discriminate against children because that's what private schools are, in fact, all about. But let's hear what Wallet Ali has to say. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. Yeah, Walid Ali has written an article on February 10th, 2022. It's entitled, There's a Solution to the Discrimination Bill Balancing Act, but it comes at a price. He says, there's a point in Labor's statement outlining its amendments to the Religious Discrimination Bill that captures why this whole episode has been such a mess. Addressing the flashpoint dispute over religious schools' right to exclude gay or transgender students, Shadow Attorney General Mark Dreyfus says, change needs to be made to protect all children. He then asserts that we can do this while still ensuring that religious schools are able to conduct themselves in accordance with the teachings of their faith. Except that raises an obvious question. What if they believe the teachings of their faith require them to exclude these kids in order to maintain their religious values? Can they conduct themselves in accordance with that? The new bill would allow schools to reject students on the basis of their sexuality or gender identity. Here, distilled, is the insoluble problem at the heart of this legislation. The rights that Dreyfus wants to realise fully and simultaneously are, at the margins, in a zero-sum relationship. The moment this bill gives primacy 
to religious freedom, some discrimination in some cases inevitably follows. The moment it gives primacy to non-discrimination, there will be cases where some religious teachings, even if very much in the minority, are being suppressed. In those cases, as we saw last week at City Point Christian College, there is no middle ground that leaves all parties satisfied. Someone wins, someone loses. That's why, for all the talk of balancing rights that surround this bill, there is ultimately no satisfactory balance to be struck that doesn't violate something that someone regards as inviolable. We see this most obviously in arguments that the law must not allow discrimination against school students on gender or sexuality grounds under any circumstances. That is an absolute claim. But the same exists on the religious side too, in ways that are often not well understood. A school like City Point presumably believes it is religiously bound to require its students to adhere to certain teachings on gender and sexuality. Prohibiting it from doing so is not merely limiting religious freedom or curtailing religious expression. It is compelling those who run the school to violate their religion. It's a subtle but crucial distinction because it is the difference between requiring them to make a possible compromise and requiring them to breach something they likely regard as absolute. I'm yet to see a way through this, no matter how far I tease it out. You could, for instance, say that education is like health, so fundamental to life that it simply must be made available to all without any discrimination. So just as we would never accept, say, a Catholic hospital refusing to treat a Hindu or gay patient, we can just as easily require a religious school to make the same accommodations. But that example doesn't quite work. No religious doctrine seems to require doctors to refuse treatment to certain people. And the whole ethos of health is that you treat whoever appears before you without judgment. If Charles Manson walked into an emergency department, he would get treated. But schools exclude and expel people all the time on the basis of their behavior, their geography, their faith, their gender, or even their intelligence. Everyone might have a right to education, but we've never required individual schools to teach whoever turns up. We see this difference in the fact that no one seems especially bothered that a religious school could exclude students of a different faith, but the equivalent in a hospital would be scandalous. Demanding schools violate their religious convictions is more analogous to requiring a Catholic hospital to perform euthanasia or a hypothetical Jehovah's Witness hospital to provide blood transfusions. Ultimately then, we're back to absolutes. Scott Morrison can't unify his party room on this bill precisely because it spans these irreconcilable absolutes. Labor doesn't reconcile them either. Its amendments simply choose one absolute over the other, non-discrimination over religious practice. Hence, the inevitable result of this week, the bill withdrawn, sent off to another review, and everyone from Equality Australia to the Australian Christian, Christian lobby comprehensively miffed. It just could not be any other way on a bill like this, with no compromise available, and which leaves interested citizens to watch on as their respective violations are debated. Which makes me wonder if this is all necessary, because beneath the political debris, there's an assumption we should question, that these issues are best resolved through legislation. Are they? 
What if there were non-legislative ways of responding to this that were more elegant and less bludgeoning than what we've witnessed? And hereabouts, I return to the City Point case as something that might just show a different way. City Point, you'll recall, ultimately rescinded the contract that required its students to comply with the school's views on gender and sexuality, merely a day after its principal released a video pledging to stand firm. It was a stunning turnaround, no doubt with several causes, but among the least acknowledged is that the Queensland government had signaled it would review City Point's government funding. I'd be stunned if that didn't play a part, and it is a lever that every government can pull. So let me suggest, in the spirit of a thought starter, that governments pull it, rather than reach for legislative prohibitions. Especially given schools like City Point are by all accounts the rare exception among religious schools. It's a highly contentious thing for a government to force a religious school to contravene its religion by force of law. But a government is rights to insist that any school that accepts government money must meet certain minimum requirements. Non who pays the piper calls the tune. The fear of the lack of money, of the loss of the money, suddenly uh, led to a change of conscience, didn't it? Wasn't prepared to put their money where their mouth was, were they? Yeah, no. They Amazing how malleable their principles can be, Jean. Once the government money comes into play, that's correct, yes. But usually behind the scenes, they pull the strings at the government with the threats of votes. So it's a two-way thing, unfortunately. You could even legislate that, that much if you really had to, but this approach immediately asks the school whether it is prepared to put a price on its principles. If so, we can conclude those principles were not as absolute as we were led to believe. And if not, then the school can proceed under its own financial esteem, unable to accuse the state of having forced it to violate its conscience. At that point, the lost funding simply becomes, by the school's own lights, the cost of its virtue. And for a school that wants to be so devoted to certain values and principles, there should actually be something beautiful in that. I like the cost of their, the cost of their virtue, don't you? I do. Yes. So the dogs would like to comment on that. And Wally Daly concludes that there's no balance to be struck that doesn't violate something someone regards as inviolable. He's in his own roundabout way, he has finally arrived at the dog's position. One, public funding for public schools only. And two, religious liberty depends upon separation of religion from the state and believers putting their money where their beliefs lie. Yes, that's been the dog's position since they were formed in 1964. And um, a lot of the people who formed the dogs and who are still in the dogs are, in fact, of religious belief because they come from the old dissenting tradition. We'll have a bit of a break. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe 
or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, and uh, our press release this week deals with the Religious um, Discrimination Bill, which is now dead in the water in Canberra, and the comments on it. Uh, two, two comments where uh, religious people, uh, one a Christian, one a Muslim, have uh, come to the dog's position of separation of religion from the state. And uh, if a state school takes money, then it should not be allowed to discriminate. In other words, it should be a public school, public funding for public schools only, schools that are open to all children, whatever their background may be. But um, there were a large number of very interesting comments in response to these articles and uh, Dale's going to uh, give us some of these. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got some comments responding to the Friar article. Uh, Buckstops here says, another thing lost in the entire debate is whether Morrison actually had constitutional power to make laws on religion. And he goes back to the dog's section 116 of Australia's constitution, which says the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion. And no religion, no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. Uh, he goes on to say, by allowing discrimination on gender and sex for religious purposes, I put it that Morrison's proposed law is unconstitutional by imposing religious observance. Uh, Nugget said, the LNP government has no appetite to try to implement religious discrimination laws again, now or any time in the future. And why? Because they thought they could sneak in laws to placate the Christian right who want to be able to discriminate against anyone who is not the same as them. Now the LNP realise that they've been caught out and the community don't want discrimination against the LGBTQIA plus community. They will leave it alone in the hope that people forget. Not going to take it anymore says, a way forward for me to stop this argy-bargy would be for the government to stop subsidising all private and non-secular schools. If they want money from the public purse, then they can apply for a grant. Terms of the grant will include showing their inclusivity programs and evidence of how they promote inclusivity of all diverse groups. This then means that those schools that don't want to do this can go their merry way under their own funding. There'll be no need for any legislation and individual to have, have the current legal system to support them against abuse, etc. Uh, Saint says most religious institutions don't want to actively discriminate against gay and transgender kids and want to be support supportive and compassionate. It's only the most extreme outliers that want this discrimination, as exemplified by the Australian Christian Lobby and supported by our religious extremist Prime Minister. Morrison's view, version of Christianity is out of step with the vast majority of other denominations. Don't let him get away with pretending he speaks for the majority. He does not. RC says, as a content and tolerant atheist, I believe the final sentence, this is in uh, Fryer's article, the less governments are involved, the better, says it all. 
Rastus says, I'm an atheist, but was educated at a Christian school. Uh, my cloudy, clouded memory of that education was that Christianity promotes inclusiveness and a love for those that are different. Maybe it was just Jesus who had this view. In my view, that means we should not discriminate against those that are different. The approach that appears to be promoted with the religious protections is that my beliefs are better than yours, so you need to conform to my beliefs. It is somewhat similar to libertarian views on personal freedom. My right to freedom is paramount to your freedom to not be impacted by my acts. Very interesting, aren't they, these comments? I think it, it indicates that... Um... The dogs are not really, we're really quite popular in the community, I would think, or our, our views are not, uh, they're quite mainstream in all sorts of ways. Uh, just shows you, yeah, we just didn't realise it. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, Yeah, the people don't realise that they're arguing our case for us. You know. Yeah, and what about uh, what about the reactions to Walladali? Are they similar? Yeah, they are. Philip says, this is in response to the Ali article, I have no objection to any private school making any rules it likes, but if it takes government money, it must abide by the spirit of the secular Australian constitution. And again, they refer to section 116 in totem. And uh, Blackburn Rob says, the problem with your suggestion, Waleed, is it would be at the discretion of the government of the day where the funding would be withdrawn. Whereas if it was legislated, they would be required by law to act. And that's, that is a concern because the government of the day, as we know, is this strange form of Christianity that is very, very much discriminatory. I'm not sure about that, though, because, I mean, they're required by law um, not to, when they advertise for chaplains, they're required to not discriminate on to what type of chaplain, what type of religious person they're going to get. And yet they advertise over and over again for a specific religion for their chaplains for their schools, and that's legislated against, hmm. um, and they ignore it entirely. So the legislation isn't enough no. to actually put it into practice. Somebody will take it to law. Yeah. yeah, you need to take some, have someone threaten to take the money away. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Renaissance Man says uh, Australia is a signatory of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. These rights cannot be extinguished in exchange for money, irrespective of its source. All children, including LGBTQIA plus children, regardless of the religiosity of their family, have rights. Article 12 says children have the right to express their views freely in all matters affecting them. This includes their identity, which belongs to them. Uh, Cop That says religion is largely a cultural artefact. So for most people, their religion is an inherited attribute. You usually get the religion that your parents gave you. Of course, some people change their religion, some discard their original religion altogether, and some disregard elements of it as they go through life. Being religious and how religious you want to be involves an intellectual choice. Being LGBTQIA plus does not involve a choice. It is part of a person's psychology and physiology, an inherent personal attribute. The rational resolution of this perceived problem should prioritise the inherent attributes of a person over inherited or chosen religious beliefs. Uh, Romster says, my point is uh, if a religious organisation wishes to impose its religious values upon those who work or are being educated within it, 
then let them, but not on the public purse. Greg says, the question in my mind is, in a largely secular society, why do we need religious schools at all? What happened to Sunday school? Surely school is for education in fact. Sunday schools should educate in faith. Judy makes a nice point about what Waleed said about, she says, I don't agree with the statement that everyone might have a right to education, but we're never required, we've never required individual schools to teach whoever turns up. Public schools take everyone. It's only private schools that have the luxury to pick and choose. And then uh, Zizi says the way forward for religious schools is to allow them to exercise what some of them may see as their core beliefs. But even if this results in discrimination against LGBTQIA students, if they do, however, they should not receive any government funding at all, as their core beliefs violate the core beliefs of society in general. Fascinating stuff. I don't think the dogs could put it more, 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 more succinctly themselves than these people writing these letters, uh, Dale. Rick, just, Rick says it quite well. Religious organisations, irrespective of faith, must adhere to community standards as determined by legislation passed by Parliament. If they don't want to do that, they must refuse to accept funding from the community purse. If they want the funding, they must accept the standards of the community. It's the old voluntarist principle of the dissenting tradition, uh, which we inherited um, from our forefathers in, in, in Europe, actually. Um, they were prepared to put their money, sometimes their bodies, where their conscience lay. Um, and uh, that's all, all that's required. But unfortunately, our religious people in Australia seem to think that their beliefs have a price on them, which is uh, the price of our taxpayer money. Uh, it's a very sad thing indeed. So we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to a few, um, a few facts and figures. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Be a part of your community radio station. 3CR. Well, we've been uh, at the dogs program talking about matters spiritual. Now we're getting back to matters very temporal and some facts and figures over to Jim. Yeah, thanks, Jean. This is from an article by Adeshla Ore. Um, it's called Private School Funding Has Increased at Five Times the Rate of Public Schools. Analysis shows, and there's a subheading: government funding for independent schools increased by three thousand three hundred and thirty-eight dollars a student over a decade, compared to seven hundred and three dollars more per student for public schools. Uh, so, by the end of the decade, private schools are projected to be overfunded relative to the schooling resources standard benchmark, while public schools will not even hit ninety-one percent of the target. Government funding for private schools has increased nearly five times the rate of public school funding over the past 10 years, according to new analysis with predictions of $74 billion shortfall in money for public schools this decade, despite the shift to a needs-based scheme. The analysis compared combined Commonwealth and state government funding for schools in 2009-10 to 2019-20. Based on the Productivity Commission's report on government services released earlier this month, it was conducted by the public school advocacy group Save Our Schools. 
In that decade, funding for private schools, including Catholic and independent institutions, increased by $3,338 per student adjusted for inflation, compared to $703 per student for public schools. Trevor Cobold, an economist and national convener for Save Our Schools, disputed claims by the state and Commonwealth governments that all schools had enjoyed increased funding. In nominal terms, he says, that is true, but when you take account of inflation, the funding hasn't kept up with costs. So that means they've been cutting the real resources in public schools. And this has been happening for a decade, right across the states, he said. While Commonwealth funding of state school students has increased by $1,181 over the decade, state spending dropped in that time by $478 per student, the analysis found. At a state level, it's also been disastrous for public schools because state governments are the primary funders of public schools. And on average across Australia, they have cut funding. In 2017, the Turnbull government passed needs-based education funding legislation based on the Schooling Resource Standard, SRS. The benchmark is an estimate of how much total public funding in a school, uh, a school requires to meet its students' educational needs and is based on recommendations from the 2011 Gonski Review. Remember that. Under reform, overfunded independent schools would have their funding brought down to the SRS benchmark by 2029, while underfunded public schools would have their funding increased. However, Cobalt said there was an average shortfall in public school funding of $6.7 billion per year between now and 2029, a total of $74 billion since the 2019-20 financial year. Meanwhile, he said, successive coalition federal governments had increased funding to private schools, such as through the $1.2 billion Choice and Affordability Fund, designed to soften the financial impact for non-government schools during the transition to a new funding model, poor things. The, the projections are that until the end of the decade, private schools will be overfunded, that is funded over 100% of their schooling resource standard and public schools won't even be funded to 91%, he said. The Australian Education Union's pre-budget submission has called for an urgent and bold investment in public school funding, including calling for the Commonwealth to fund schools to a minimum of 100% of the SRS. Marjorie Evans, exec Chief Executive of the Independent Schools Australia, stressed that the vast majority of enrolment growth in the independent school sector in the past five years was in low to medium fee schools. These are schools that receive higher levels of government funding overall due to their community's lower capacity to contribute, she said. Mm -hmm. Under the current school funding agreement struck in 2019, the Commonwealth contributes 80% of the SRS for private schools, while state governments are responsible for the remaining 20%. The split is reversed for public schools, but Cobalt said the state's formal target for public schools was only 75%, contributing to the underfunding. Additionally, he said, the current funding agreement also allows states to include in its SRS contributions spending on items not originally deemed part of the Gonski benchmark, such as depreciation, transport and payroll tax. New South Wales Education Minister Sarah Mitchell said because the figures in the Save Our Schools analysis were not taken directly from the Productivity Commission's report, they were unable to be validated by the Department of Education. Mitchell said growth in the state's expenditure for each student from 2010-11 to 2019-20 had exceeded all other states and territories as more than double the national average. Victoria's Education Minister, James Merlino, said since 2014-15, the state had increased its recurrent spending for government schools by more than 30%. 
I've repeatedly asked the Commonwealth to do its fair share and fund the final 5% of the schooling resource standard for our government schools, and it is consistently refused to do so, he said. Overall, in the 2019-20 financial year, the Commonwealth spent 3,246 3, on public school students, and the states spent 11,935 for a total of $15,181. Meanwhile, the Commonwealth spent 10,211 for each private school student, uh, and the state spent 2,978, a total of 13,189. The fig figures exclude user cost of capital, depreciation, payroll tax, and school transport, as these items are not included in the funding figures for private schools. Cobalt said the upcoming federal election provided an opportunity to recast education funding as a key policy area, or else inequalities in funding would worsen over the rest of the decade. A spokesperson for the acting education minister, Stuart Robert, said the government services reports showed the Commonwealth's investment had grown faster for both government and non-government schools compared for, to states and territories. The Morrison government is proud of providing record school funding to all schools to meet the education needs of Australian students now and into the future, with $315.2 billion to be provided to schools between 2018 and 2029 under the government's quality schools package. The federal opposition... It sounds to me, uh, with all of these figures, that the governments are... Uh, the state schools are falling between the Commonwealth and the state governments. Uh, yeah. And they're each blaming each other. But the but, other thing that I'm hearing from these figures is that if you take into account what shouldn't be included in the, um, the costs of a public school student, a public school student is, is costing the taxpayer as much as a private school student. In other words, the, um, the actual cost to the taxpayer, the private school student, is in no way less than that cost to the, to the taxpayer of a public school student. That's what I'm hearing from these figures. Almost the same. Yeah. Very, very similar indeed. Um, when you, when, you know, in very broad terms. And if that's the case, why do we need them? Economically, well, we yeah, we you know, economically, we could actually take over these schools and um, we could probably educate our children to a much, much higher standard um, if we just did it in public schools alone and the wealthy can go off and do their own thing. Well, paper, paper Jean, the, the public school students uh, were, uh, get 15,181 spent and the private school students get 13,189 from what I'm reading from these figures. Yes, but, but that excludes the cost of capital, depreciation, yeah. payroll tax, school transport. It's about fiddling with the numbers. So That's that, what um, I'm saying. Yeah, they're, it, they're probably, it's probably about 13000 to 14000 for each uh, overall throughout the whole of Australia. Um, if you start, and, and, you know, it means it's comparable. That's, well, what, it means, I, that's, it means we do, that's what I'm hearing. It means we do have a choice, and when it comes to election time, and in, in, to finish the article, the Federal Opposition's Education Spokesperson, Tanya Plibersek, said a Labor government would work with states and territories to ensure every public school was on a path to its full and fair level of funding. And that's the end of the article. But um, it, we, we know also from cruel experience that um, both parties are funding uh, the, the private schools. Yeah, no, I'm not happy. We, 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 dogs aren't happy with either. 
uh, the Labor Party might be marginally better, but um, the Greens, I think, have got uh, uh, their handle on the on the on the school funding a bit better than the major parties. But we'll have a bit of a break because we've got to get to our great state school. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You're still listening to the Dogs Program and Dale's going to tell us about how the private schools in New South Wales are gaming the exam system. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This is an article by Jordan Baker uh, saying that the New South Wales uni bosses are ordering a review of perfect ATARs after international baccalaureate students beat James Ruse, which is our great state school. So powerful university chiefs have ordered a review of international baccalaureate results amid concerns that overly generous markings gave private schools an ATAR advantage after more than one in 20 IB students in New South Wales achieved 99.95 last year, which is the top result. The surprising results have upset some school principals, parents, and mainly the broader education sector, who worry that inflated IB results could undermine the fairness of the HSC. Students with top ranks gain access to the most sought after degrees in the state, such as law and medicine. The IB is offered in only some New South Wales private schools and is often part of schools marketing. It is not offered in public schools. Former HSC boss Tom Aligonarius said the most disadvantaged students suffered when financial privilege played a role in school leaving credentials. There's no clearer ethical responsibility than to treat all students equally and our universities are failing at it here, he said. But a spokesperson for the IB said the organisation's priority was to ensure students were not disadvantaged when applying for uni during the pandemic. Last year, fewer than 600 New South Wales students sat the IB diploma, but at least 41 of them achieved the highest possible uni entrance rank, compared to just 35 across the whole country the year before. Of 55,000 HSC students eligible for ATARs, only 48 achieved the same 99.95. 12 of the IB top achievers were from a single, non-selective girls' school, and nine were from a non-selective boys' school. 
just five students from the highly selected James Ruse Agricultural High, the state's top school for the past 26 years, achieved the same rank by doing the HSC. Uh, New South Wales Vice Chancellor's Committee has asked the University Admission Centre, UAC, which it owns, to investigate the sharp rise in so-called perfect scores. A number of sources told the Herald on the condition of anonymity, because they're not allowed, they're not authorised to speak publicly, IB students' ranks will not be affected. The university chiefs are concerned about so-called grade inflation, which involves awarding higher marks than in the past for the same standard of work. As we saw with HSC, changes were made to IB assessment procedures in consideration of the pandemic, and this may have impacted on their scores. But we will continue to monitor IB results to ensure that our conversion remains fair. The IB was generous in its marking of Northern Hemisphere exams last May, giving out quadruple the number of top marks it had on average over the previous four years. The number of top IB ranks does not affect the number of top ranks given to HSC students, but it does secure them spots in the state's most sought after university courses at the expense of lower ranked HSC students. HSC students. The issue of how to equate IB marks with the ATAR has long been a point of friction, partly because of the lack of information given to Australian authorities, and partly because many in the education sector feel it gives some private school students an unfair advantage. The IB only gives Australian authorities a mark out of 45, and not the students' raw marks. UAC equates a 45 with an ATAR of 99.95. In contrast, UAC has access to all HSC data and analyzes it significantly, adjusting according to subject difficulty before giving students a mark out of 500 and then ranking them. UAC was supposed to get more detailed data from the IB for 2022 university admissions so that it could better differentiate ranks. But the IB decided to delay that until 2023 saying students had already faced too much disruption during the pandemic. Many of the private principals whose school do not offer IB are worried about this year's results. It's causing consternation, said one, who did not want to be named. I think there will be some schools who think, if you can get 12 kids to get 99.95, why would we be doing HSC? I think it's a real threat to the reputation of the future of the HSC, if that's going to continue. So it doesn't matter what it is, the private schools to get a market share at the university entrance are really gaming the system. But what's interesting is that they're using a state school, uh, the people who are questioning this, they're using a state school as the um, baseline, and this is the James Roos Agricultural School. So we thought that you, we'd tell you a little bit about this school because it is held up as perhaps the best school, private or public, in Australia. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
And this week's great state school is James Roos Agricultural High School. Congratulations, James Roos Agricultural High School. We've been talking about it. We've heard about James Roos from um, Dale just before, and I would like to expand on that. It's a selective public school whose vision is to provide national and global leadership in the education of the gifted. That is from their website. That is a quote from their website. Um, James Roos Agricultural High School seeks to provide a learning environment that both challenges and supports gifted students to pursue excellence and develop a lifelong passion for learning and prepares them for responsible leadership and service to society. Their vision is to ensure the development of the whole child, ensuring academic success combines with the development of resilience, resourcefulness, critical and creative thinking, personal and social capability, and ethical and intercultural understanding. Um, the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, or NESA, is responsible for the curriculum um, from kindergarten to year 12 for all New South Wales schools. And for high schools, NESA develops the syllabus in eight key learning areas, which are creative arts, English, human society and its environment, languages, maths, personal development, health and physical education, science and technological and applied studies. Uh, like all New South Wales schools, they have developed teaching and learning programs to suit their local context and the needs of their students. James Roos Agricultural High School topped the 2021 HSC honours list in the HSC for the 26th consecutive year, maintaining its position as the top high school in New South Wales. The stellar achievements in 2021 include five students achieved an ATAR of 99.95, over 50% of students achieved an ATAR over 99, which is the top 1% of New South Wales, and 79 out of 160 year 12 students recognized on the premier's list for all round achievers with results in the top possible band for at least 10 HSC course units. I'm gonna shoot some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. Um, there's 854 students enrolled and the ICSIA value is well above average at 1,240 well above average. 83% um, of the students come from the upper quartile of parental income. Yeah. 11% um, from the second highest quartile, below 50% from the third quartile and 0% are from the lowest socioeconomic areas. <clears throat> so so really the wealthy have really found this, this great public school, haven't they? Yes, they have. It is selective, so you might argue that the school finds them. Yep. And there's <laughs> a lot of tutoring going on. It's it's the Sydney version of Melbourne High, I believe. And yeah. more so, and it's an agricultural high school, which is even more interesting. They do. So when the public system wants to do it well, they do it better than anybody else. So the Australian government provides $2.5 million. The New South Wales government provides... $9.1 million. Um, $1.6 million comes from fees and parental contributions and other private contributions make up $584,000. Um, 
It costs about $16,000 to send a student to this school, which is actually quite reasonable. And yeah, in their NAPLAN results, everything is obviously well above average. So congratulations, James Ruse Agricultural High School. You are our great state school of the week. Fascinating. Thank you very much. But uh, we've come to the end of our time. If you want to find out more about the dogs or about our press releases, go to www.adogs.info. But thanks to Dale and Jeff and Oliver and Kim and Maddie. We're all saying bye for now. Joe.